Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny B. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 50,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. Talk about all the things that I've been with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm feeling sick. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. Welcome to another episode of Words and Nerds, where we bring literary goodness straight to your ears. Today, I'm super excited because a repeat guest, but someone I haven't spoken to in a while, is back on the pod so we can have a chat, really, just an excuse for a chat. Happened to have a book out as well, which was a plus. Jack Heath is the man of the moment, award-winning author of 40 novels. I swear this goes up by 10 every time I speak to you, Jack, for adults and children. His books have been translated into several languages, adapted for film and optioned for television. Uh, Head Case, which is his new book, we're going to talk about today, and I'm really excited because everyone knows how much I love Timothy Blake. <laughs> how are you, Jack? Welcome back. Uh, thank you. Always a pleasure to get wordy and nerdy with you. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, for listeners, we just had a bit of a conversation about our standing desks, and I'm just realising how odd it looks when both of us are standing <laughs> when we're talking on Zoom. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, um, if I can, it, like, it's too early in the interview to start plugging stuff, but Will Anderson's new book, um, I Am Not Fine Thanks, is very, yes. very good. And there's this one chapter um, about how, so he has back problems and so he can stand up and he can lie down, but he can't sit down, which is a problem for running a panel show where it your whole job is sitting down. Hmm. And so there's this chapter of, like, all the workarounds that he and the ABC have tried on his Digging a hole? Was digging stuff. a hole one of them? That was definitely one yeah. of the options and stuff. There was like gluing the top half of a fake chair to his back to make it look like he was sitting down. And I have to tell you that um, I know it's his real and actual pain, but that chapter had me like pissing myself laughing. It was so, so, so funny. So uh, I Am Not Fine Thanks by Will Anderson is a really, really good read. I love that. There was also a part in that book where I think driving home he had to stand up in the car with the sunroof open. <laughs> yeah, like the Pope. <laughs> like the Pope. So, yes, it's very funny. I love William. So I saw him at the comedy festival last year and it was really, really funny. So uh, good. Going again in 2023. So <laughs> never too early to plug, Jack. Never too early. We can just sit and talk about comedians. Yeah. I don't mind. Uh, is it still a plug when I'm not, like, affiliated with him in any way? <laughs> no, it's really <laughs> it's not. It's really just a recommendation, it is, isn't it? It's is. like I liked this and I found it funny too, the whole digging holes thing. Mm. Anyway, we should talk about Headcase a little bit. Right, yeah, my new um, I mean, you know, I know we'll get distracted, but that's okay. That's part of it. Uh, hit me with an elevator pitch for head case, an impossible yeah. body, an ingenious crime. Yeah, okay. I've been uh, <laughs> promoting this book for like almost a month and I'm Ooh. still not very good at elevator pitching it, but I, I have a really good feeling about this one. Great. Okay, I'm so excited. 
So uh, a dead Chinese astronaut is found lying on Mars, but not the real Mars. It's like a NASA training environment just outside Houston, Texas. And so the CIA becomes concerned that there's a secret Chinese spy um, spacecraft floating in geostationary orbit above the United States. And so they send their best or at least most expendable asset, Timothy Blake, um, to investigate. And Blake thinks, well, on the one hand, this is completely impossible. You can't just fall out of space and then <laughs> land on the ground more or less intact. That can't be what happened. But also, on the other hand, he doesn't really care what happened as long as he gets to eat the body. And um, he has been sent not just because he's, like, expendable, but also because there's someone working at NASA who he put away back when he was working for the FBI. And on top of all that, Blake is telling the reader all this from his position in a psychic Psychiatric hospital where he has been imprisoned and is getting the treatment he so desperately needs. <laughs> has needed for a number of books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For a number <laughs> of books and possibly his whole life. <laughs> that was a great elevator pitch. I think you nailed it. Oh, thank you. I might have gone over the um, elevator pitchy was, 30 seconds, but no, I, I think really, I covered the broad strokes of the story. It was a story. tall building, Jack. It was like 100 floors. <laughs> Yeah, fair <laughs> we're enough. All, we're all good. Uh, this novel, I felt like, went in a really different direction. You know, when you started talking about Chinese astronaut, NASA training environment, all these kind of things, I felt like it was in a really different, like same characters, but really different um, environment and setting. Tell me where this came from. Yeah, one, one of the fun things about Timothy Blake is that he's – um, he's such a distinctive character that you can actually dump him into a different genre in each book without actually losing your readers because they're here for the character rather than mm. for the genre itself. So, so a romance is still on the cards? <laughs> there, there is still romance in this book, even a love triangle, possibly. Oh, That's, um, That's uh, my favourite part about Timothy Blake, the romantic <laughs> cannibal. Yeah, it doesn't really work without him. And I, I mean, I know you're, you're kidding, but like when I... I first started writing this series so long before the, the first book was even published but I was really into Buffy and Angel and mm -hmm. the rest of the world was starting to wake up to um, you know Edward and Bella there were a lot of romances out there where like they really want to be together but the guy wants to eat the girl and so the this as a romance series it, it has more um oh what's what's the word not not prejudice what do they call it when judges precipice precedent it has precedent <laughs> i was just letting you go there so, yeah, yeah 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 um but so that first book was kind of a straight fbi police procedural serial killer type mystery and the actually no the first one was you know missing persons he type one the second one was more organized crime but with a sort of serial killer narrative woven in the third one was a bit more agatha christie small mm. house small group of suspects yeah. sort of cozy crime type thing and this one's a spy novel um I so it's that. always um it's always blake but i he gives me the opportunity to experiment with different genres and i've always loved spy fiction mm. uh so it was fun to have a go at that but i also really like that sort of one flew over the cuckoo's nest type genre of like writing something set in a madhouse there's always opportunities for drama and comedy and you know all sorts of things so that was fun too oh i love that so much and that's really clever actually putting them all in those different genres and dumping the character in. and i often think if you create an amazing character not, doesn't make it easy for you, but it makes it doable that you can just put that character in any situation, you know how they're going to react or respond, and that's what makes your story. 
Yeah, I think so. One of the things that's difficult about Blake, though, was unlike, say, I mean, Jack Reacher is the obvious example, Mm -hmm. um, or Doctor Who, actually. Jack Reacher, Doctor Who, completely different ends of the spectrum. But the point is you can drop either one into Mm -hmm. any time and any place and know exactly what they would do. And and that means both those series is you can kind of jump in anywhere. Um, And with crime fiction, it's especially important to write a book where you can jump in anywhere. Yeah. But... um, um, Blake makes that difficult because he does actually change over time, both mm. mentally and physically. I think one of the reasons that people, uh, um, like I have always treated him as a pretty disposable character. I write each book as though there's never going to be another one, which means I can do things like have, he loses a thumb in one book. He loses an arm in another book. You know, he uh, he loses a son. He loses the love of his life. He loses a lot more than he gains. But that means that um, the fact that I've treated him as so expendable, it seems to be kind of what the readers, what makes the readers latch onto him mm-hmm. in this way that... Um, that means that okay, he's he's certainly lasted a lot longer than I expected him to. Like this this sort of one-off cannibal detective novelty guy has uh, has you know readers all over the world now. But it means it's harder and harder to put these books together in such a way that it's consistent with everything that's happened before. Yeah. It's still accessible to new people and still unpredictable and all that stuff. Mm, no, that's absolutely true. And I was wondering with his character arc because. You, know, you never know if another book's coming. I remember I spoke to you after the second one, I think, and I was like, is there another one coming? You're like, oh, I don't know. I hope so. You know, so you, you, you're sort of bound by publishing contracts as well, but then you've got to have a character arc for him, not only for each book, but then over the series. So how, how, how much of a challenge has that been? Yeah, that, that's interesting because um, just recently I was having a conversation with some people about it potential TV show based on this. And don't get too excited. There's there's always discussions about that kind of thing. It never happens. I'm excited. I'm <laughs> blanking out my calendar. So to binge it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, just make sure it's about 2035 or something. <laughs> Done. Like I'm free. Now. I'm free then, <laughs> Oh, great. Okay, excellent. <laughs> cool. Um, I'll bring the popcorn. Uh, but so the, the producers were like, um, so we've we've got enough material for like the first book could equal the first series, the second book could equal the second series. That all works, but with a TV show, you really know where it's going to end up. Like you need to know what the yeah. overall series finale, yeah. series finale season, not the season finale, but the series finale. Yeah. Like where does it end? And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> that's not how that's not how I roll. I mean, I had. Uh, like what's the point of thinking of an ending for the whole series when even the endings I pick for individual books always get changed at the last minute anyway? (laughs) By you or by your publisher? Well, a mixture of both. Just to give you some idea, I mean, I'm obviously not going to spoil the ending of Headcase. No, never. But the the ending of Headcase is basically my original ending for Hangman, the first book way back down in the day. But the... um, but that ending, so when I eventually found a publisher who was crazy enough to take on Hangman, um, they said, yeah, we we like it, but that that ending doesn't work. He hasn't earned that, whereas now he's kind of earned oh, it. So wow, I'm that. still very much feeling my way through this okay. series sort of yeah. instinctively rather than planning it out several books in advance. Mm, which I think is great. And do you feel like when you do that instinctively, it's sort of surprising yourself, so therefore it's still surprising the reader? I definitely think that's the case. I mean, 
Chuck Chuck Polinick has a has a quote about that that he would put it much more eloquently than I do about like if you don't surprise yourself you won't surprise yeah. the reader or something. And my general feeling is that uh, so for at least one of the books I think it was Hideout I sent a um, a pretty detailed plot synopsis to the publisher ahead of time and the publisher gave me a contract and then I wrote the book and as I was writing it I thought of a bunch of extra plot twists that were like way better and uh, so I put all those in and then submitted the book and kind of shamefacedly said I'm sorry it's uh, not exactly like the outline of the book that I said I would give you and my publisher was like yeah, I don't read them <laughs> and I said what don't tell me that that's way too much pressure because there's so many instances where I've been like okay this is a crazy idea for a book but the publisher must like it because they approved the outline so I must be onto something but if it really is just me then uh, then that means there's a whole lot more risk going on but in either case so in this instance for headcase I just sent a blurb rather than an outline and so mm -hmm. that meant there were even more surprises along the way um, there were certain plot developments that didn't turn up until even the second or third or fourth draft okay. um, but eventually this one I had a bit more time than I usually do okay. because I, I used to write one of these books a year mm -hmm. in this case I was going to write this and then there was some shuffling around and I ended up writing Kill Your Brother instead so in between when I pitched it and when I actually wrote it there was a whole year of extra thinking time okay. which I think made a big difference in how mm. it turned out. Hmm, that's really interesting. Now they always say, I think it's the second album is the always the hardest. So four books in this series, what was the most, which, which one was the most challenging to write and which was the easiest if there was one? Ah, uh, right. So definitely the first one was the hardest. Mm -hmm. um, as your listeners can go back to a Words and Nerds episode, whatever, to hear me <laughs> talk about um, Hangman at length and the 10-year process involved in writing different drafts and trying to find a publisher for it and, um, you know, giving up on it and leaving it in a drawer for however long and stuff like that. But um, this one was difficult in a, in a different way, I think just because there was so much more research than I would normally have to do. Yeah, I thought um, that might be the case. Yeah, so mm. I needed to know about NASA and space. <laughs> there was all the stuff that I Easy. needed to know about Houston in general, <laughs> plus all the stuff that I needed to know about the CIA and how it works. And for that, I read um, there was a wonderful uh, autobiography, a memoir of a CIA agent named Amaryllis Fox, which I read. And unfortunately, a lot of the stuff, so I read this whole book and it was amazing. And the only bit I ended up using was like having Zara scratch a Rolaid on a, on a pole because it's like suspicious to carry chalk in your handbag, but not suspicious to carry Rolaids. That was the only <laughs> thing I ended up using from that whole book. But um, at least I felt more confident knowing it all. Mm. So yeah, there, there was a whole lot of extra research that I had to do to, to make this book what it ended up being. So mm -hmm. it was hard in a different way from Hangman, whereas Hangman, I was still kind of trying to figure out the character. So the other two books in between were a bit easier. Okay, that's really interesting. Now, I remember speaking to you ages ago about research and you were just saying, I just write and then I fill in the gaps afterwards because otherwise it sort of, you know, it pauses your writing. That wasn't the case for this. You kind of had to do the pre-research. Yeah, so I was kind of researching as I went. Okay. I, I already had some basic interests. Like yeah, I'd been, yeah. um, I'd read a couple of pop science books about space just because I found that stuff interesting. You've been um, to Texas? 
I've been to Texas. Maybe yeah. not a psychiatric ward. I don't know, maybe, maybe <laughs> well, not. No, but I'd been, I mean, that was another part of this was when I was undergoing treatment for my own mental health condition. And I was uh, in, uh, so meeting with a, a psychologist, I had the same thought that I've had at many different times in my life, which is what would Blake do in, in this situation? <laughs> and, the, and the obvious answer was like, well, he'd probably tell the truth for once in his life because she's bound by talk to patient confidentiality. Uh-huh. And also she wouldn't believe him. And also he would know that. So he would feel free to say, yeah, I'm a cannibal who works for the CIA who is researching an astronaut. What of it? Knowing she'd be like, no, well stop being a liar. <laughs> yeah, lying. exactly. We're going to treat your delusions now, Mr. Blake. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so that idea was so funny that I just couldn't let it go. So <laughs> I kind of managed to squish that together with a with an idea that I'd had for a book set in a madhouse that was like an, an a YA idea that I had years ago, but I can't tell you exactly what the idea was because it's basically the final twist of this book. <laughs> um, but so there was all those existing interests that I had, but then when I wrote a draft, that was the point at which I had to start showing it to experts. So for yeah. example, uh, there's a great guy named Dr. Richard Harris. Um, uh, the uh, He was the uh, anaesthetist or one of the anaesthetists who became an Australian of the year for his role in the Thai cave rescue. Wow. Um, he had the misfortune to be stuck in a shuttle bus with me at about <laughs> five in the morning on the way <laughs> from the Sunday Voices Literary Festival <laughs> to somewhere else. And um, so I said, you know, uh, my wife's cousin worked on the Thai cave rescue. He was one of the a- AFP divers. And um, and uh, and and Harry, as as he's known, Dr. Richard Harris goes by Harry. Um, he said, oh, yeah, who was it? And I said, Ben. And he said, oh, all those guys had nicknames. Was it Snuffy? And I'm like, yeah, I don't care. The point is you and I are basically cousins, so I need you to do me a favour. I need you to read my book and invent a technology that solves a plot problem I'm having involving, like, blood oxygen levels. So he immediately, in the back of this shuttle bus, comes up with this new um, ultra concentrated perfluorocarbon thing and so I like jot that down in my notes and then I convinced him to read the manuscript and then he went through it with his red pen and he's like that wouldn't happen like that that wouldn't happen like that so my whole life is a process of just kind of look out for interesting people who know things that I'm not likely to know there was a um a a person who I love that. There was a person who works in intelligence who helped too, but I can't tell you any of the details of how I met them or who they are. So, which is not to say that the book is realistic. There's like, there's two kinds of spy fiction. A great writer named Sam McGregor, who who wrote a Wattpad novel uh, years ago that went viral called Darkness Girl. He read a draft of this as well and said, look, there's two kinds of spy fiction and there's an uncanny valley between them. There's the ultra realistic Le Carre stuff mm-hmm. and there's the bombastic, ridiculous James Bond stuff stuff and if you try to do a mixture of both then you'll end up with something that readers don't buy so i had to it was a bit like writing one of the cosentino books again or one of the um uh the stunt kid or kid president or villain kid books it it was all about finding the right level of reality for this Mm -hmm. story to operate on because it couldn't happen in real life it's really interesting yeah Yeah. so on that spectrum of, of, of bond where were you well, the fact that it has a cannibal CIA agent, <laughs> that it was always going to have to be at the sort of less realistic end of the spectrum, which meant that there were some scenes that involved people just, you know, 
sitting at the dinner table having a conversation where one of them is secretly trying to convince the other one that they work for someone who works for someone else who works for someone else but in fact don't you know those sort of different levels of false identities and triple bluffs that le carré does so well um i ended up cutting a whole heap of that from the Mm -hmm. manuscript i'm like Mm -hmm. nope what readers are here for is they're here for like blake to you know be shot at and then be trying to to hack the arm off one of the shooters with a bread knife and then get pulled out of the room covered in blood. They, they want this sort of yes, that ab- is what we want, Jack. liveliness. We do. Yeah. We do want that. And that's, that's why, you know, I love crime. You know, I love crime. But whenever I pick up one of these books, I know I'm going to have so much fun reading it. Like, I love your dark crime. I love your mystery crime. I love all the crime. But I know when I pick up this, it's going to be your, you know, signature dark humour in it. It's going to be a little bit unbelievable. But you don't care because you're just immersed in this world. And I always have fun reading these books, so I just love Timothy Blake. And I think going back to Timothy Blake, you know, we talk about him being a cannibal, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but his likability comes from the fact that he's so tortured about his compulsions. Yeah, I... I think readers, um, if he didn't beat himself up so much, readers would be more inclined to do it for him. Um, and it's weird because his victims, and he does have victims. I mean, he, uh, for for the most part, like originally he was eating the bodies of death row inmates who are theoretically no worse off if their their body happens to get consumed by a cannibal after the fact. But it's very moral all... of you, Jack. Very moral. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was supposed to be like this sort of uh, moral philosophical hypothetical thing and then pretty quickly just just became like a a deranged crime novel um but we're a long way past that now like there are definitely people who blake has killed and yeah so i think um um but him feeling guilty about that after the fact doesn't benefit the victims in any way shape or form but readers are still more inclined to cut him a bit of slack and again i think it's true it's clever the way you've done it because you do you know it's not like i i want to meet hannibal lecter but you know timothy blake in daylight with a lot of people around i'd have a coffee with him i wouldn't walk with him in quiet dark alley (laughs) okay yeah i'm not sure i would want to meet him in real life i i often think um the the qualities that make a a character likable on the page um are sort of the opposite qualities of what i would want in a real life friend (laughs) You know, like you don't want Dr. Gregory House as your actual doctor, right? <laughs> like true. That, that would yeah. be the worst. And true. As we... much as I love Dr. House, you oh, but he solves really interesting medical mysteries, Jackson. Maybe you would want him because no one else he solves and discovers things that other people I think I do want Dr. House as my doctor. Yeah, okay, fair enough. But do you want Jack Bauer in your police force? Is the other question. Like for I want example... him as my bodyguard. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, like cops who are loose cannons yeah, who who yeah, don't yeah. follow the rules are the best characters and the worst people. Yeah, you know, yeah, that's, you're probably that's right. that kind of thing. Yeah, you're even if they don't right. eat people. <laughs> Thank you for moderating me, Jack. The author of Cannibals moderates me. I don't know how that happens. Anyway, now yeah. I tell everyone this story, Jack, about how you were saying to me about two thirds into your book you stop and you go hmm i've lost my talent i'm a fraud i can't write anymore even though you have 40 books to your name jack you're not even 40. so (laughs) that's pretty impressive so does that still happen to you or have you pushed through that a bit yeah it definitely still happens so it's um, comforting to everybody else i tell by the way (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That that's really nice to hear. And sorry that it's at your expense. That's <laughs> no, all good. On the on the wall behind me, this won't benefit the listeners of your podcast at, at all. But I've um, pasted some tweets from a, a bookseller and author who who's just talking. She says, "Headcase is nothing short of a masterpiece," and there's more and more stuff after that. But that's not on my wall, so as anyone else can see it. Like no one else ever comes into this office now that my wife has her own shop instead of like sharing an office with me it is just there so as i can glance at the wall from time to time and go like it's okay i still know how to do this i'm <laughs> still a good writer i can because it's all well and good for someone to say to me like oh don't worry you're a great writer i love mm -hmm. the lab and i'm like that was 20 years ago a lot has happened since then <laughs> what if like i can't write anymore because i've had children like all my all the brain power that used mm, to be devoted to my writing happens. is now devoted yeah. to my kids yeah totally for happens. example yeah or what if it was just that i was young once and full of energy and now <laughs> i'm old and haggard and oh you're so uh, old and, that's the first thing i thought when i saw you jack old and haggard actually yeah. you look you look younger with your new halloween hairstyle not that it's new anymore but I thought <laughs> it, aging backwards but you know if you need to look at some good stuff you've literally got three pages of reviews in headcase at the beginning plus oh, yep, you've got true. sarah bailey on the front and you've got gabe bergmoser and candace fox and benjamin stevenson on the back all saying amazing things about this book so you just need to pick up your own book and go oh yeah mm -hmm. uh, yeah but they're all very nice how do i know i can <laughs> trust them plus who knows they don't like want me to blurb their books in future or something like that um, so <laughs> yeah, anyway, gone to the, a very dark place. Jack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the the collapses of confidence do still happen, and I think uh, uh, still when when the writing's going well, I'm sure I've said this on your podcast before. When the writing's going well, I'm not thinking about whether I am a good writer or a bad writer. I'm not mm. aware of myself at all. I yeah, just kind of disappear the best into the flow, story, right? Yeah, yeah, and that means that it's maybe this um maybe it's not about being two-thirds of the way through the manuscript maybe it's something that particularly happens when i'm trying to promote a book at the same time as i'm okay. trying to write one yep. because that's the point at which you become extremely self-conscious you have to because you're mm. literally out in front of an audience they are looking at you they're asking you the kinds of questions that you've been asking me and it gets you thinking about yourself rather than your book and then when you look at yourself you're like well, obviously that guy's not a good writer. He just kind of sits there all day, kind of glaring into a coffee mug. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think the uh, maybe, and I'm often promoting a book when I'm two thirds of the way through a previous okay, one, because that's just how my schedule works. So maybe mm. that's the issue. Maybe yeah, I need to maybe. do a full Cormac McCarthy and just disappear into the wilderness. But and... I notice you do disappear. You are so controlled with social media. I envy this about you. You can just disappear and I know that you're fully into writing and then you're like, here's my book. Hi, I'm promoting it. Hi, everyone. I'm alive. And then you just disappear and write. Obviously, you need to do that to sustain your career, but it's admirable, Jack. Uh, thank you. It, it doesn't feel like I'm good at that or especially controlled. I feel like if I had more discipline or self-control, I would be able to do that thing where you like post once a day or something for and then spend the rest of your time focused on writing. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not like that. When I have been spending any time at all on social media, I look at the world through a lens of what would make a good post or tweet okay. as opposed to what would make a good story. So okay. it's very important for me to disappear for long periods of time. Mm. But that self-awareness is amazing to have that level of self-awareness. No, it is. <laughs> 
It's because one of the things nice about being in my mid to late 30s <laughs> is that you know, you start to know your own flaws. Oh, you it's do. Like well, you how start when to embrace them as well, right? You're like, oh, yeah, I am like that. Mm, okay, yeah. sure. Exactly. Whereas Ooh. when I was in my early 20s, I'd be like, well, okay, I'm going to learn to speak French. And <laughs> what I'll do is I'll, um, I'll just study it for an hour every day. You know, how hard could that be? And as a like 36, 37 year old, however old I am, I forget. <laughs> it's like, um, I still have that same goal. Like I'd love to learn another language. And then I get to the stage of, well, I could study an hour a day. And then I go, yeah, but I'm not going to do that. Mm. I know from mm. past experience, mm. like, have you met me? I yeah, have. I exactly. do not do that kind of thing. Exactly. So I need to have a different strategy. So I know I like myself it. well enough to have strategies now. Yeah, and I like it. And it's okay to have these flaws. I tried to learn French once too, and it was honestly my brain did not compute the French language. And ah. so I... Je ne sais pas. Oui, oui. That's all I got. <laughs> it was the masculine feminine things that made my brain explode. Oh, yeah. And you like, always worry here. about em embarrassing yourself. Like if you say, um, you know, le milkshake instead of la milkshake. <laughs> la and you worry that a bunch determined. of French people are going to be like, oh, he thinks his milkshake is a girl. <laughs> <laughs> but how yeah. do you determine that? I was trying to crack the code going, okay, if a milkshake's this or that, and you know a television's this or that i was trying to crack the code of what's feminine masculine there's no code yeah there's, no code. there's all sorts of things that don't make sense in english either for oh, the record absolutely. but if you've grown up marinated that's in it, right but easy. i did not grow up marinated in french i started learning it in my 20s and it was way too late for my brain french mm. is a beautiful language my brain just did not compute it <laughs> whole other story now i want to ask you um i once saw you posted something on on some social media oh i love your t-shirt jack head case oh. i just noticed it oh yeah thank you i um i Fantastic. went a bit crazy on vistaprint i bought three of these and then like threw out all my other shirts because <laughs> i'm like look this book isn't gonna sell itself yeah, just gonna i want everyone who so much as yeah. glances at me to be exposed to a little bit of advertising like we don't have enough of that in our lives already. no i love it it's fantastic i'm glad i noticed it um totally lost my question going back to editing yes i saw you post something on social media once where you actually showed your track changes uh from the editor of one of your books was that you yeah, yeah, that was me. Yeah, cool. You just I looked confused. I was like, am no, I no, mixing no. you up? <laughs> Good. I'm glad. I'm glad I know what I'm talking about. And I just thought that was, A, really honest and vulnerable and interesting. But I wanted to know now, 40 books in, what does your editor or editing look like now compared to, I don't know, 40 books ago? Is it still the yeah. same? Do you spend <clears> the same amount of time with your editor? Is, is it less? Give me the rundown. Um, no, no, it's more. Probably. Oh, wow. Okay, like, that's interesting. Definitely my my first book, I worked harder on my first draft and then a lot less hard on the edits. Like, okay. do I really yeah. have to go through it all again? What do you mean? <laughs> You're kidding. It's done. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, whereas, and then there was kind of a period in the middle of my career where I'd like, I think the cutout was the first book I did this because I did that for NaNoWriMo. I would like race through the first draft to write it as quickly as possible, mm -hmm. like just get to the end and yep. then go back and start to do the editing. Um, now that I write full time, um, I can do both. I can spend a lot of time writing the first draft and okay. a lot of time doing the editing. Cool. But definitely I'm much... Uh, uh, fiddlier when it comes down to the individual sentences now. So if you saw one of my manuscripts with track changes on now, it's just 
there's red everywhere. It's, (laughs) I don't even like, um, uh, when, whenever I see someone reading, uh, or when, whenever I can tell someone reviewed the advanced reader copy of my book rather than the final book, um, I'm always a little bit self-conscious because I'm like, I changed so much after that because even at that final proofread stage, I was still scribbling here and there. Um, and that's okay because the point of an advanced reader copy is just to give booksellers an idea of what the basic story is so as they know who they can recommend it to. Yeah, exactly. But um, but I definitely feel like uh, it, it needs that final spit and polish and I never kind of shortchange that. There's mm. another graph that I posted in my newsletter a little while ago about like the amount of time spent on a book versus the amount of dollars you can earn from it and how it oh. makes this funny kind of shape where like a book you haven't, spent any time on and haven't even written yet you obviously can't sell for very much unless you're a celebrity who's already absurdly famous and just you know signing a contract um and then there's quite a steep curve when you're uh you know doing the first draft or the first couple of rounds of editing but then once you get to the final stages there's a plateau where you're spending hours and hours and hours on a book that was probably already fine but I still can't let it go so I um I I spend longer on my books than it makes economic sense to do but on the other hand my readers seem very committed to them so maybe it does make a kind of economic sense over the long term because Mm -hmm. I know I'm not letting anybody down anyone who who reads the book will hopefully enjoy it enough that they'll want to buy another book from me sometime in the future. I'm impressed with that graph, Jack. <laughs> uh, you wouldn't be if you had actually seen it. It was done in MS Paint. Um, <laughs> I'm not good at graphing. I looked up actual graphing software and I went, no, nah, this is too hard. Okay. It's just my newsletter. I don't do quite as much polishing on my newsletters as I do on my novels. You'll be thrilled to hear. No, I love that you took the time to work out. It must have been a little bit depressing, actually, to look at the <laughs> time spent versus economic. I'll just burn that. doesn't matter. Burn it out of my yeah, brain. For sure. I ask you this all the time, Jack, but 40 books in, I want to know why you keep writing. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I'm reading a book at the moment called How to Change by the name escapes me, but it's a, it's a nonfiction book and it's, um, so think, you know, the power of habit or atomic habits, but, but with a sort of broader scope than that, it's that kind of, oh yeah, yeah. That, that kind of self-help book that you're showing right now. Oh, I just started how to meet yourself. It's how to really meet cool. Yourself. Yeah. yeah okay. Cool. Interesting. Hmm. Um, but it had a, so there's definitely a, a section, it goes beyond just habits, but there is something to habit, like those things that, um, like instinct is what you're born with, habit is things you learn. And I am at a, a stage in my life now where I've been doing this for so, so long, like all my adult life and most of my childhood, it would be weird to get up one day and not write. Like yeah. I... I don't even know what I'd do with myself. That that would be strange. And make graphs, go on social media. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Make but t-shirts. I, <laughs> well, actually, it would be easy to kind of fall into that. Uh, I've definitely seen those authors where you know how they, they become so successful that they don't have to write anymore and then they don't. And I'd like to pretend that that, Um, wouldn't happen to me. But uh, in reality, I've never quite been tested that way. Like (laughs) if there was some massive Game of Thrones style show based on, (laughs) on this series, would I stop writing it and just give interviews instead? Maybe. And I'll see you on a yacht somewhere sunning yourself. 
going, well, writing? What's writing? I'd like to think I'd be sunning myself, but I actually feel like it's more just that, again, it's the self-consciousness thing. If you feel like the whole world is watching over your shoulder, it must be very hard to ignore that. It's like when you're, uh, even if you're pretty good with numbers, if you're doing a complicated maths problem on your own, you're fine. But if like mm. your boss is watching mm. you do it, suddenly do you're anything, stupid. Right? Yeah, it's like, <laughs> yeah. do I? What are I, words? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think there's an optimal level of success and I'm probably yeah. at it. I, I could overshoot it if, <laughs> if I'm not careful. So, yeah, the reason I'm still writing is partly habit, partly because I love it, partly because look, just good books make me happy and creating mm. things that make other people happy makes me happy too. So there's um, – and all, all the ideas have got to go somewhere. Like if I had been in on that therapy couch and hadn't had the thought of like – what would Blake do, then <laughs> Then what am I even, like, what's the point of that experience? To benefit me? No, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Everything has to be turned into a story. Otherwise, what's the point of it ever having happened? <laughs> well, maybe to improve your mental health, but also a story came out of it too. So that's really positive. Yeah, it, it is nice actually that, um, I mean, so the, the writing as therapy idea. Yeah, absolutely. Like I've, I think there's real value in that, but it's also the case with you know how these days you're kind of expected to 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 reveal everything or else you're a fraud or a <laughs> phony or some kind of weirdo. Like if you don't want to share everything with the whole world with no caveats or limitations. And then if you do and you're even the slightest bit imfect, you are crushed. <laughs> or you're an oversharer. Um, yeah, exactly. I I remember this is another newsletter quote, but something like if, if 2022 had a motto, it would be be yourself as loudly, authentically and often as possible, but also make sure you're perfect or we will destroy you. Oh, like that's, that's, so that's true, the feeling it? of it. It is. And I feel that feeling the same with live your best life unless it's inconvenient to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly right. But the great thing about fiction is that you can kind of explore your own brain without revealing everything to the audience mm -hmm, like, like i i didn't have to write a memoir to get certain things out of my system i could just write a book about a cannibal lunatic and insert bits and pieces of my own life into it but not in a way that anyone would ever recognize and, and then I'd i feel prefer, better Jack. and the readers feel better I'd yeah prefer. exactly <laughs> you wouldn't want to read my autobiography Look, I, sit I would at a read desk it all day i would I standing desk <laughs> I would definitely read your memoir, Jack, but I'd prefer to read Headcase. I'm sorry. Uh, thrilled to hear that. <laughs> well, as always, Jack, it is always a pleasure talking to you and time goes so fast every time we do. And I thank you for sharing with me all the things you share, not just about books, but about yourself and your process and all those things. It's, you know, every time I see that your book count goes up and up and up, it'll be 50 the next time I speak to you. I with any luck. <laughs> so prolific, um, you know, writing two genres, kids and crime. Um, you know, I think you do an amazing job. So thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure.